Hello, you are listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, we get to hear from behavioral biologist and expert in all things dolphin communication, Dr. Stephanie King. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited to hear all about you and your research. So for some of my listeners who maybe don't know who you are or what you do, could you give a little brief summary? Sure. So I'm a behavioral biologist. I'm um, currently based at the University of Bristol in the UK, where I'm an associate professor in animal behavior. Um, Most of my research focuses on communication and cognition in animals, specifically cetaceans, so whales and dolphins. And as part of that work, I run or co-run a long-term project on dolphin behavior in Shark Bay in Western Australia, where we've been studying those dolphins for 40 years now. Yes. And, you know, what a career, you know, how many people can say as part of their work, oh, yeah, I get to go and study dolphins in Australia. You know, it sounds like that kind of dream that you come up with when you're five years old and are like, yeah, I want to I want to do that. So where did your passion for marine mammals come from? It was during my undergraduate degree. So I guess from an early age, I'd always known that I wanted to work with with animals Um, And so a natural progression was to study zoology at university Mm. and learn about that discipline. Um, And and during my time at university, I became really interested. I had some really good animal behavior lecturers. I became really interested in behavior and communication. And then I did an internship at the Center for Dolphin Studies in Plettenberg Bay in South Africa. So that was kind of my first experience of marine mammals. And I spent- How did you end up over there? I think I saw an advert on Marmam um, and, you know, still, we still send adverts out ourselves on Marmam. So it's a great way for kind of budding um, cetacean scientists to get some experience in the field. I saw that advert and I went out um, and spent three months there. And I think that changed everything for me. Prior to that, I always thought I'd work with terrestrial mammals. So maybe social carnivores. Um, but just spending time on, on the water with these animals, I became fascinated with how social they were, but how they would have to overcome certain challenges in order to kind of maintain these relationships or to communicate with each other. They live in an environment where vision is restricted, sound travels very far. And so this has led to some specialized adaptations with regards to the use of sound both in terms of communication, foraging, et cetera. Um, And so that was it. I was hooked. And I really wanted to spend my time learning about how they shared information with each other. How had their communication system evolved to enable them to maintain these relationships? So once I discovered that, my eyes turned to the University of St. Andrews in the UK, which has the Sea Mammal Research Unit. Um, And I was very keen to go there and work with with the experts in in the field. It's amazing how, you know, one kind of moment or experience in your life can really shape 
the rest of your career. Was it difficult coming back to the UK after having that experience in South Africa and being like, oh my goodness, this is this is what I want to do. How do I get there? I think I was just more, even more determined. And I really threw myself into my final year at university. And that's when we had our research project. So at the same time, I, I discovered that I wanted to work or I was interested, really interested in marine mammals. But then I did my first proper research project in that third year, right, at university. And I and I kind of fell in love with research. I loved um, the independence that you had, how creative it could be to design experiments or think about a question and then how you could test it. Um, and I, I just loved everything about it. And I had some good career advice uh, during my undergraduate degree. And, um, you know, we, they, they gave me advice on how to pursue a PhD, but, but at that time I had applied for a PhD during that final year at St. Andrews, cause I wanted to work with Vincent Yannick, who was there, who was an expert in dolphin communication. And I hadn't got that PhD. Uh, and then I'd seen that they were just starting this marine mammal masters. That was the first year they were running it. And so I applied for that. And I remember my advisor at at Leeds, my undergraduate advisor saying, oh, don't do a master's, you should go straight to a PhD. And I was, I remember saying, no, this is, will get me where I want to be. Mm. This will allow me to build those relationships with people at St. Andrews. Yeah. And that's what happened. So I'm really glad that I had followed my instincts, um, that I'd gone to do this master's and I'd continued to pursue the kind of PhD that I wanted. I think that's so important. You know, there's no one way to get to where you want to be um, and I think sometimes you if a path is not available to you you have to kind of forge your own so you know you didn't get your PhD then you went and did the master's and then um, got your PhD so when you started with your PhD what was your focus on? I was very lucky we got some uh, BBSLC funding so they have these doctoral training partnerships so funding for PhD students and we wrote the proposal on referential communication but when we got the funding you know um, Vincent had said to me you know well what do you want to work on because there was a choice here that I could develop my questions and I'm thankful for that because I absolutely loved my PhD and that's because I'd got to develop the ideas I'd become fascinated with this idea of vocal matching or signature whistle copying. So why would, um, we know a lot about dolphin signature whistles. At the time, we'd started to see that they would sometimes copy one another's signature whistle. And in other species like songbirds, this kind of immediate copying of the same vocalization is, is very much an aggressive um, behavior. But surely it must mean something else in dolphins when we see it occurring between animals with, with social bonds, strong social bonds. So I got to pursue that. And my whole PhD was on um, signature whistle copying in bottomless dolphins. And I feel very lucky that I got to do that, that I was given the opportunity to pursue the questions that I was interested in. Yeah, it's, I mean, dolphin communication is so incredibly interesting. They're such social animals and, you know, there's so many different facets of communication that you can study. So what were your initial findings with regards to the copying of signature whistles we didn't we used a number of different data sets and one of the um things that they got to do was work with some of the sarasota data which is the longest running dolphin research site in the world and they have lots of acoustic data from individuals during these health assessments and i got to spend some time in woods hole and i got to 
uh, spent time with Peter Tyrek and Leila Saig. And at that time, you know, they were, these were the people that I was looking up to. I mean, I still look up to them, but you know, these were big names in the field. It was very mm. exciting. Um, and we looked at when copying was occurring, right? So who would copy who? Uh, and it was, that work showed us that it was always between animals that had strong social bonds. So mother calves or male alliances. Um, and then we did a separate experiment during my PhD, which was incredibly challenging. And this was with the dolphins in Scotland. So I was out on the boat doing playback experiments. And what I had to do was follow a group of animals, record the sounds they were producing. And I was looking in real time on a spectrogram what I was recording. And I had to identify signature whistles. So when there was a, and this is based on the timing of the whistles, we worked on this as part of my master's with Vincent, but we had this SIG ID, this method where we could identify signature whistles in free ranging animals. And once I identified a signature whistle, I'd have to create a computer generated version of that whistle on the boat, making sure that the group of animals I was with, the composition hadn't changed. Mm. So if any of you work with marine mammals, you know how challenging this is. Um, and also that, you know, hunched over a computer in the North Sea, I had to deal with seasickness. And, and then we did the playback experiment. So then I was playing back a copy of that animal's signature whistle because it was a computer generated version where all the voice features had been removed. Mm. Or I would play back a control whistle, like a familiar or unfamiliar whistle. That showed us that um, when an animal hears a copy of its signature whistle, it calls back and replies um, immediately as if it's been addressed. And it doesn't respond that way to the controls, the familiar or unfamiliar whistles. Looking for the perfect marine mammal themed Christmas gift for your loved one? Or wanting to treat yourself this holiday season? Then you have to check out Terry Miller Custom Tales Jewelry. Their customized pendants are recreations of your favorite whaler dolphin's tail in sterling silver or gold. They will design by hand a custom tail to look exactly like the flukes of your favorite flippered friend. I have worn my Skyla flukes for almost five years now and I could not recommend them highly enough. Wanting a pendant of a different species? No problem! Send Terry an inquiry email to terry at customtailsjewelry.com or check out their website www.customtailsjewelry.com What does stand out to me from that time is I remember in the start of those um, experiments I had different people from St Andrews come out on the boat and help me and there was a, a postdoc a senior member of the group that came out and I remember them saying you know why are you making things so difficult for yourself why don't you just test like how they respond to animals from other populations you know because I was I'd, I'd get the whistle ready for the playback but if one animal had left I couldn't do the playback so it was mm -hmm. challenging and I remember thinking or, or saying well that's not how we push the field forward you know that's not how we we make these big discoveries and that this will allow us to understand how these animals perceive copies of their own signature whistle so it was hard um work but i'm really glad that the hard work paid off because that ended up being published in pnas into after my phd and that really helped me with the next stages of my career having having papers like that yeah i think it's incredible you know not only advocating for yourself but also for your research and saying like no this is what I want to do and I also believe that that it's important but yeah the image I have of you up in the North Sea most likely you know <laughs> I've been up there on a boat I know exactly what it's like I know how cold it is the wind the rain the, it permeates your bones exactly very cold 
um, seasick. Although I, by the end of the field season, I, 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 could, I didn't get sick anymore. So I guess that was a benefit. But I started, I guess, with the hardest possible field work because now I work in Sharp Bay where mm-hmm. uh, the conditions are incredible and I'm very spoiled. Um, so I'm glad that I, I started with the North Sea and then, um, you know, I've had that experience of working in, in really challenging conditions. Yeah. So how did you get involved with the project in Shark Bay? Did you go from the North Sea and go, okay, I need to find something a little bit nicer? No, I remember I finished my PhD and that's, the PhD is such a big step in your career, right? That's three or four years of your life you're dedicating to the PhD. And it feels such a big achievement and it is when you get your doctorate, but it's just the first step in your career. You know, and I think I was a bit naive to how things would be afterwards. And suddenly then you're independent, you're competing with loads of people for opportunities for postdoc positions or fellowships. Um, So I think it can be a really difficult time if you want to stay in science, if you want to Mm -hmm. stay in research. So at that time, I just knew I had a very clear idea of the kind of the, the questions I'd like to focus on next. And I started writing fellowship applications. Um, I, I started at the same time working for the Dolphin Research Center in Florida, in mm-hmm. the Florida Keys. So I work very closely with them still. That's uh, Kelly uh, Yakula and colleagues. Um, so I was working with them for a bit and that allowed me to build connections with them. And since then we've continued to work together. And then I heard that Richard Connor and Michael Crudson, who run Sharp Bay, um, were looking for someone to join the team to look uh, investigate acoustics and, and the vocalizations of the animals and I mean this was a golden opportunity because it's so hard I think to establish your own site it's so hard to to join a, mm. a research project when it's already up and running people mm-hmm. are very protective and of, of their area and I understand that um, but here was this opportunity so I remember flying out to Zurich in 2013 and meeting Michael and Richard and we started working on grants um, And then I got a fellowship to join the team. And it was very quickly, I think, from start, I got a five-year Swiss fellowship um, and I could take that anywhere. So I moved to Australia actually at the time. And it wasn't long before I was brought on, not just as a collaborator, but as a a PI of the project. So now there's four of us that run it and um, it's an absolute gold mine in terms of questions. I mean, it's the most incredible place in terms of dolphin behavioral complexity and Um, I was very lucky to join the team, but not only that, I'm lucky to work with such wonderfully supportive, a wonderfully supportive group of people, Mm. because um, I'm not just working with collaborators, I'm I'm working with friends. And Mm. I think while it it does require juggling, you know, we've got four research groups, four PIs, we're far more productive because of that, Um, Mm. because we can get work together across disciplines sometimes and and we can answer a lot of questions so yeah I'm very lucky to be in Sharp Bay. It's incredible when you know a group of people that are so passionate about you know the work that they do and genuinely enjoy it you know it just it just makes your work day not feel like a work day sometimes. So you're saying that in Shark Bay, you know, you can answer a lot of questions with that population that you have there because there's a lot of scope. There's a lot of different things going on. So can you explain to some of my listeners what that population of dolphins is like and why it Mm. is like that? 
So Shark Bay is a, is a special place. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Area and, and there's lots of kind of um, in ecological features that make it special. So it's shallow water, this big shallow water embayment. It has the, the world's largest seagrass meadows, the largest population of dugongs. It's diverse in terms of fish uh, life, sharks, rays, and we have a population of dolphins that numbers in the thousands. So this isn't just a couple of hundred animals, this is thousands of animals. And the density is really high, so every there's a dolphin every square kilometer. You know, you, you don't have to go out on the boat and try and find the dolphins, like you're falling over them. Um, and in this population, so density is high, both sexes are uh, phylopatric, so um, basically an, young male or female dolphin doesn't disperse when it becomes sexually mature they stay in the area they were raised and because density is so high there are lots of animals that they interact with um, so in terms of social complexity we see things like um, male alliances in sharp bay we have not just alliances but multiple levels of alliances so males will form long-term cooperative relationships with each other that can last their lifetime. These alliances start forming when they're juveniles and then these males, once the alliances are formed, will stay together until old age. That could be early 50s. So that's a significant amount of time that these animals spend together. And the reason they form alliances is because this population is so big, um, there's lots of males competing over access to females. Mm. In a given year, there's only a certain number of female, females available to um, have to mate with because once a female has a calf, it'll keep that calf with it for three to four years. Yeah. Right. So, in order to get access to females, males then have to work together in these alliances, and the alliances function in um, defending females from rivals and stealing mm. females from rivals, and they try and keep that female with them for as long as possible. Um, to induce her to mate with them. Mm -hmm. So there may be some element of female choice here. The males might have to impress her, but they have to keep her with them for mm -hmm. as long as possible. And then we have, so we have alliances within alliances because it's your pairs or trio of males that will herd a single female, but each male is part of a bigger alliance, which can um, be up to 14 in size. So while you might have lots of pairs and trios that are herd individual females, if one of those pairs or trios has a female and a rival comes to take her, the other males in this bigger alliance, the other pairs and trios in the second level of alliance will come in and help their, their second order allies keep that female, even mm -hmm. if there's no immediate benefit for them. Uh, and then sometimes you'll see two of these core, we call them second order alliances, form a third order alliance. They also help each other defend females or steal them. So it's very strategic with the males. Uh, and it's all about increasing their lifetime reproductive success. Mm. Um, we also have lots of foraging specializations. It's a, it's a really rich ecosystem and we have tool use in dolphins. So it's the only example we have of tool use. And um, there are marine sponges that dolphins tend to break off and it, they kind of fit over their rostrum like a glove. And the dolphin dives down to the seafloor and probes the substrate, the seafloor looking for benthic prey and the sponge protects their rostrum from spiny fish or, or anything else that could that could damage them damage their rostrum and when they find a fish drop a sponge pursue the fish hopefully capture it 
and then we see them use that same sponge until it breaks down. Um, that behavior is passed down from mother to offspring. So if your mother was a sponger, then you'll become a sponger, but you won't learn that behavior if your mother was not a sponger. Mm. Uh, and it's very female biased. So we see far more females doing it. There are some males, but far more females. And that's um, probably because it's um, time consuming to learn uh, and to perform. And males have to start from a young age investing in these alliances, right? Mm -hmm. We see other tool use. We see shelling where dolphins will chase fish into these empty big baler or trumpet shells and they bring the shell up to the surface and shake the shell and the fish falls into their mouth. And again, using different um, statistical techniques, non long-term data, we've shown that that behavior is learned from um, peers. So it's not sex biased, both males and females do it. And it tend, you tend to learn it from animals you're associating with, you're spending a lot of time with. And you can learn that behavior as an adult, for example. So in terms of foraging complexity, we see lots of different foraging specializations too. And there are only just two examples of, of the many that we have. So when you first went over there and you saw all of this, no, obviously when you, when you first arrived, you didn't have the same amount of understanding of everything that went on that you do now. But I can just imagine that that absolutely blew your mind of, oh my God, there's so many dolphins, so much is happening here. How do I figure out what to focus on? It's funny because I remember my first reaction and I see it in my in my group members now when they first come to Sharp Bay. But I had read those papers on those male alliances and I'd always wondered, well, I mean, how obvious is this? I've said I've worked with dolphins in the wild. It's challenging to know what they're doing. You know, how can you see this type of behavior? And then you get to Sharp Bay and it is striking. I mean, the males are highly synchronous with one another. They're almost moving in formation and you can clearly see there are three males in formation coming in. There are two males here with a female. You know, you can see the th three coming in, directing aggression towards the two. And at the end of the fight, you see them move off with the female they've stolen. And it, it was just so clear. And then all, all, all at the same time, there's a fight and then three more come in and you can see who they're supporting. Mm. It's so clear. And I think I was just blown away. And also, um, with regards to their communication. The male dolphins in Sharp Bay use a, a vocalization that we don't see frequently elsewhere in other populations. It's called a pop vocalization. It's these trains of narrow band, low frequency pulses. They produce it when they're herding a female and they'll pop at the female. Typically the female then comes closer to them. Um, so it's, it's a signal of, you know, you need to stay close. If she doesn't, then it could escalate to physical aggression. Mm. You know, we were seeing dolphins like sitting at the surface, lying at the surface, we call it snagging, you know, popping in air. I mean, these vocalizations were in air. I mean, I'd never experienced anything like that in a different population. And one of our criteria for confirming a consortship is pops in air. So, you know, these vocalizations that you can you can hear and you can see who's producing it because mm. of the blowhole moving. And it's absolutely incredible. And I think the complexity of the social relationships coupled with the long-term data, each male, you know, we might have a 40 year old male that we've known since he was born. Mm. We know who he's related to. We know who he cooperates with, who he fights with, which females he's herded, which offspring he's sired, who he likes to spend time with because we have all that association data. Mm. But you can look at the whole history of an animal and then look at how that's influencing its behavior right now. Um, and I think that's why it's such a goldmine because of the richness of the behavior that we see, but also the mm. long-term data. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, knowing your animal's history is so unbelievably important when it comes to breaking down behavior and understanding their their reasons for doing certain things, you know, it's what trainers use every single day as well. You know, we learn from the trainers that have been there for 20 years, you know, we would be nothing without that knowledge. But at what point when you started in Shark Bay, did you realize that you wanted to focus on cooperation? I'd actually written my fellowship on cooperation, but that's because I hadn't been to Shark Bay yet, but I became fascinated again with we have these alliances, how do they coordinate their behavior? You know, how are they um, recruiting? Are they recruiting each other? Do they understand the idea of cooperation? That's not something we can test in the wild, but that's mm -hmm. why we've done experiments with dolphins in human care. Mm -hmm. Well, what do these animals, do they have an understanding of the, of the, the need for a partner in a cooperative context? Can they use vocalizations to facilitate cooperation? So we can ask those types of questions in controlled settings with animals in human care, and then we can try and understand what mechanisms are being used in the wild. Um, so the alliances had inspired me, but I hadn't realized how exciting this would be until I got to Shark Bay and saw them for myself. Um, and, realized, and also I started recording them, realized how rich their vocal repertoire was, you know? so many different sounds that they would produce. And I've been working there since 2016 and we're still only scratching the surface with mm -hmm. these men. Yeah, I can imagine, especially because there's so many. Yes, there's so many, but then there's also different age classes. So I have a student that's been looking at social play in the juvenile males. Mm. How important is that for their uh, relationship development, for skill development, for example? Mm. Um, I have a student that's starting now who's going to be look, using drones and arrays to look at when they are herding females, how are they using signals to coordinate their movement patterns? Because mm. you see them strategically adjust their position around the female to keep her with them. Mm -hmm. So these kind of things we're starting to do. Um, the first few years, it was really understanding signature whistles of these animals, how they classified their own relationships, um, how they were using pops, that kind of the thing, the topics we've been publishing on in recent years, um, but we've still got so, so much more to ask, so many more questions to ask. I think drones have changed the way that we do research as well. You know, they've only become more frequent in use in the last couple of years for behavioral research. I didn't have them during my PhD. My PhD was challenging to, to kind of quantify behavioral response because you are relying on a vocal response or a measure of how far the animal was from the boat before and after the playback. Mm. But you couldn't see the animal under the water. Now with drones, we can do playbacks where we can document everything, even a head turn mm. towards us that's occurring underwater. And it's also showing us that um, how much these males invest in their relationships, for example, that through the drone, we're seeing they spend a significant amount of time petting each other right rubbing their pectoral fins against each other a bit like grooming in primates or preening in birds and that's again because these relationships are so important for their lifetime reproductive success that even when there's a female they still spend a lot of time investing in the relationships with each other i think um, it's incredible the scope that you guys know so many individuals yes and um you know they also have their individual personalities it's not just 
a dolphin tusk. Mm. It's, um, you know, CB, who was born 32 years ago, and he has spent most of his time with Pastor and Pong, and he likes to produce pops in air frequently when he's consorting a female, and he's always the first one maybe into a fight. And they're very, they're, they're all the individuals, males and females, can be very different in how they respond to particular a particular behavioral situation or in a particular context and you really it's a privilege to watch them because you really get to know them as individuals if you like because they do behave in different ways um that's also inspiring and gives you ideas for the kind of future questions that you could ask surrounding individual differences in behavior and what that means for um you know long-term fitness of, of a of an individual so for a number of different reasons, you know, you've said how special Shark Bay is to research and how many opportunities it presents for researchers. But you guys still use facilities and human care to have a more controlled environment. How important is it to be able to study dolphins in human care to further your knowledge and, I suppose, techniques um, for studying the dolphins in Shark Bay? I think it's really important. You know, I work with one facility, which is the Dolphin Research Center in the Florida Keys. And these animals are kept in uh, lagoons, sea pens. Um, they're in constant acoustic contact with one another. There's lots of animals there, so they can change group composition. My point here being that it's a, it's a, it's a supportive, healthy environment for animals. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so I think, I think working with the animals in human care allows us to have more control over some of the experiments we're doing uh, and to ask specific questions. So for example, with regards to cooperation, to really test whether an animal understands the need for its partner or the role that its partner is playing when, when they're cooperating, you need a cooperative task where you know what the animals are trying to achieve. That's almost impossible to do in the wild. Um, whereas in captivity, we know what they need to do in this mm -hmm. cooperative class to be successful. Um, and then we can, you know, we can run these experiments where we're, we're essentially putting the animals in different scenarios. So they, they kind of learn how to work together in the task, the cooperative experiment, and then we delay the release of a partner. So we give access to the apparatus to one of the animals first and we see whether it knows that it needs its partner to be successful does it wait for its partner these kind of experimental designs have actually been used for many years with different species um, so there's the classic cooperative rope pulling paradigm that's used which we had modified but the principles are the same and so we're, we can do comparative experiments that allow us to see well which species have this ability and which don't and we have control over the situation. And our work has shown that the dolphins do have an understanding that they need their partner in order to, to work together. Um, so they wait for their partner, they coordinate with their partner. They will use vocalizations to facilitate that coordination, right? This shows us that as a species, they have the cognitive capacity to understand the role that others are playing and to coordinate with others when they're cooperating. This is something we wouldn't be able to do in the wild, but I think it speaks not just to our 
it doesn't just help us interpret the behavior that we see in the wild and allow us to look at cooperation in wild animals. But it shows us that these animals cognitively have some of the skills that we as humans tend to think of as complex or advanced. Mm. And, and I think a nice bit of work that we've done recently, this was led by my current PhD student, Pernilla Sorensen, is playing back noise to the animals in, in human care when they're cooperating. And we had uh, suction cup tags on each dolphin, that little hydrophones, so we could measure um, how loud the sound was, the noise we were playing back, how loud that was at the dolphin, how loud their whistles were. Mm -hmm. And we showed that noise can actually impact dolphins working together. It can have a negative effect on cooperation, even when they try and compensate for that noise. And that study will be coming out shortly. Um, again, it shows us that we need to, in the, when we are thinking about management and conservation of a species, it's not just about impacts at the individual level, mm. but how this disturbance is impacting their ability to work together. We know that cetaceans, particularly bottlenose dolphins are highly cooperative both in terms of the alliances, but also in foraging behavior. And if we're not considering that impact, the impact that we're having at the group level, then that could have um, you know, serious implications for, for fitness or the longevity or the survival of a, of a population, for example. So I think um, work with captive, with dolphins in human care, not only informs kind of the pure research of what these animals are capable of cognitively, um, but it also helps from an applied angle where we can look, well, what are the impacts gonna be of increased anthropogenic disturbance, for example, how is that gonna impact their cognition or their ability to communicate with each other? So I think the work that is done with animals in human care is vital. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's obviously very big differences in the lives of animals who are born in human care and stay in human care compared to animals who were born in the natural environment and live there. There's there's obvious disparities. However, being able to control for so many different things with the animals in human care and train them specifically for the question that you're asking and getting those results and then extrapolating them to use them with the animals um, in the wild. I just think it gives so much. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's on the tip of my tongue. I keep using the word scope, but it's not scope. It gives so much, I don't know, like potential for, you know, different findings. So how do you think that we can continue to work together? Because this, this is really what I like it's, it's my utopia. It's what I want. I want everyone just to work together because we all love the animals. And, you know, it's something that researchers have been doing for a very long time um, with animals and human care. How can we continue to work together to make sure that both animals, like both sets of animals thrive? I think this is it. I think the relationship, the work that we do um, with facilities and in the wild is is kind of is integral to make sure that we maintain healthy populations in the wild mm. you know um everyone that i know that works on with wild animals and with animals in human care cares very much about the welfare of the animals mm -hmm. um i care about the animals that i work with in sharp bay as individuals mm. because i know that well I care about the animals I work with in captivity or in human care 
I care about the animals I work with. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think I think one thing that we could do as scientists that also work with wild animals is when we are working with facilities is that we make sure that there is, we're helping to develop ways to promote cognitive enrichment. Absolutely. And that's one thing we've seen with the, the cooperation experiments is um, the dolphins are so motivated, some of them in particular, so motivated to engage with this, that in the end, once we'd finished our experiments, we would then leave the apparatus to them mm. uh, so they can continue to interact. And we recorded all of that as well because we were interested in, well, are they recruiting each other when we're not there to say, yeah. you now engage with the task? But it's so clear in their behavior that this is rewarding. And these animals are, you know, they're cognitively complex. They they have strong social relationships. They like working together. You know, we see lots of examples of that in the wild. And so using experiments like this to that could then be left with facilities mm-hmm. to improve cognitive enrichment is really important. Um, for me, it's not just about taking what I need from those experiments. It's also about working with the trainers, the facility who care about the animals and, mm-hmm. and seeing if we can do develop any other tools or techniques or experiments that would be beneficial for the animals that they enjoy. Um, I I mean, I I completely agree. And I think, you know, obviously there's a huge focus from our side of of explaining to people how important we are. And by we, I mean, animals and human care to helping their wild counterparts. But you can't forget that what we learn from their wild counterparts can also be used to help our animals. You know, you study the importance of cooperation and dynamic social environments and communication and, you know, everything that you've learned, we can then adapt in our own, you know, facilities and parks to say, okay, should we train our animals so that we can give them more choice in their days? You know, can they then choose what enrichment they get to participate in? Can they then choose what trainers they get for each session? Can they even choose what behaviors they want to do? How do we make our enrichment more naturalistic? How do we adapt what we're doing to give our animals the best welfare possible? So I think you absolutely cannot forget the importance of what you've learned with wild animals and using that to improve the welfare welfare of ours. I completely agree. Uh, and I think I'm always surprised by the pushback um, against some facilities when, you know, these animals, we've seen this in the past, they can't be released back into the wild if they've been born in captivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, some even if they've been rehabilitated can't go back mm-hmm. um, so it's our responsibility to make sure that their environment is as enriching as possible I don't think it's enriching for an animal that's been raised in, in human care to then be put in a sea pen without any contact or any enrichment you know when you see how much in then in the wild like they're always engaging with each other or in Shark Bay, they're always getting up to mischief. You know, we'll see them <laughs> blow uh, bubbles around a turtle and the turtle's just swimming in circles <laughs> and getting disorientated. They do it for fun. It's like 20 minutes and then they're off. Or they blow mm. up um, pufferfish and bounce mm. them around the surface and the pufferfish is just blown up and then they'll leave it. And they're always doing something, you know, and, and interacting with each other. And mm-hmm. so I, I feel a responsibility, yeah, to, to support the facilities in any way I can because also in return, I'm getting so much information that allows me to put into context the things that I'm seeing in the wild mm. or to 
help me interpret the behavior that I'm seeing. It must be really frustrating, not just for you, but I, I believe for all scientists with, with your type of background, um, you know, the public eye, the media definitely take one side of things and kind of run with it, but it must be so difficult. You know, you have all of these years of experience, you know, you are a published scientist, you are in the nitty gritty of this is fact right here. And you know, your voice is getting trampled over by people who really don't know what they're talking about. What What is that like for, for you? It must be so frustrating. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. And I think we're very good at um, distancing ourselves from these things. You know, so I just shut off, I shut off from it now. But, mm. but actually when it, it can be quite it's frust- most of all it's frustrating but it can also be hurtful because you yeah. spend a lot of time with again in Sharp Bay it's not just uh, a place I occasionally do a bit of research I go every year I know those animals mm-hmm. you care very much about the welfare and so when people mm-hmm. are insinuating that that you don't because you do work with animals in, in in human care I think it's challenging but at the same time it's our responsibility to try and educate and have honest conversations that speak you know decisions should should be made based on evidence and we can only speak to the data and speak to the evidence that's there and try and convince people that you know um everyone has a degree in google these days (laughs) yeah maybe they need to think about all these issues before they make a decision so yeah it's challenging but you know what can you do Ironically, I think a lot of those people are coming from a place where they care about the animals. And oh, for sure. It's, it's ironic because we also care. And actually, there are so many animals or populations in the wild that are threatened mm. or facing in- extinction. We are not putting enough time or effort or, or, or like a spotlight on them. You know, bycatch causes the death of hundreds of thousands of cetaceans each year. How many people are thinking about where their fish is coming from or whether mm-hmm. they should be eating fish? Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I find that the most frustrating thing, that actually if we want to have a big impact, impact on cetacean welfare, we should be thinking about those issues. Um, Absolutely. A handful of animals in facilities that are really well cared for. I mean, even if you look at individual facilities, when, when I was working at Marineland, we had a massive um, collaboration between all of the trainers of every department and um, with our fish suppliers. You know, we really argued for, we don't care what it costs we need to be sourcing our fish from the most sustainable um fisheries you know we we ended up uh stopping feeding our animals capelin because the capelin fishery was about to collapse and we were like we we just cannot justify feeding our animals capelin when the wild stocks are so depleted so we changed we ended up getting more mackerel and some whiting which was instantly probably better for the animals anyway you know they 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 did better on that fish um you know so there's so many different ways that that we try our best and and we're all very aware of it you know I get to say I don't eat fish I would love to say it's because I want to be super sustainable I just don't like fish (laughs) um but yeah you know people people don't really think about their impact at those levels and yeah they just kind of get a bit carried away sometimes I think I mean that and industrial farming you know I think it's morally it's one of the worst things that we do as a species is industrial farming and I wish more people cared about um how pigs were treated you know Mm -hmm. these animals uh, we're talking cognitively the same as our dog um 
people would there would be an upcry at least in some countries if you start eating you know your dog um but the way that those animals are treated is horrific so it mm -hmm. is frustrating but i understand that people get passionate about a cause and and it's our job to try and educate wherever possible um well animals are always going to inspire huge passion and huge outcry because as humans we love animals the majority of people love animals and we want to be their protectors we want to give them a voice and I think the problem comes in when people see something and jump to their own conclusions or yeah. put their own project their own feelings onto a situation and think well I wouldn't like this so this animal obviously doesn't like it either or they don't have enough understanding about it I wanted to write an article it's on my to-do list about how we anthropomorphize this type of behavior you know I also face this with the sharp bay dolphins we talk about the male alliances herding females mm. and it always goes to gangs and male violence and this is it drives me crazy. We're doing the animals a disservice by anthropomorphizing their behavior in mm. that way. Yes, the females are herded and yes, sometimes that's aggressive, but these males and females also have their own bonds. Mm. And I've seen them outside of the mating season come together, pet each other, spend time resting together. You know, they know each other. And some of the data is starting to imply that it's the males that have the stronger relationships with the females that tend to sire more offspring. Mm. You know, it's far more complex than gang warfare or, or male violence or rape. It, sh it just shouldn't come into the mm -hmm. discussion when we're talking about these male alliances. Um, it's, it's something that everyone like everyone does, I guess, is anthropomorphize and, and project their own emotions or feelings on, onto an animal or think, how would they feel in that situation? But um, it's not helping, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it does a disservice, not to the just to the animals, but to the science. Yeah, I mean, I'll be the first to say I can be incredibly anthropomorphic when it comes to my animals or talking about my animals, especially with other trainers. I feel like within our own community as trainers, we're incredibly anthropomorphic because we're secure in the knowledge of we can say these things to our colleagues and they will understand exactly what we're talking about and what the behavior is but I think as a wider community we need to be very careful and I'm talking about myself as well when we're talking about these types of behaviors to a lay person or someone of the general public who doesn't have the same understanding of animal behavior that we need to curb the anthrop being anthropomorphic just a little bit to avoid swaying them to jump to conclusions if that makes sense no absolutely I completely agree mm -hmm. but I think your research in Sharp Bay is incredible. You have such a wonderful population over there, you know, night and day compared to the North Sea, I'm not gonna lie. What is the future of your research over there? What what do you really want to uh, to study at the moment? I, you know, when I started my fellowship in 2015, the aim was still looking at how important communication was in facilitating polyadic cooperation, so group level cooperation. And we, we still haven't answered that, I think. We've, we've made lots of progress in getting there, mm -hmm. but we're still not there. How are these, and, and this is the captive work, the work, and the work with animals and human care has certainly supported this. We know mm -hmm. that they understand cooperation. We know that they can use signals to facilitate, but how are they doing this in the wild? So we have a, I have a PhD student, Emma Shereskin, who's just um, starting now, where we'll be using drones, and arrays to look at when males are herding a female, how are they using vocalizations to coordinate? How do they adjust their behavior in relation to one another? And does that reduce the chance of them losing the female? 
And we'll do playback experiments on top of that to look at um, how important those vocalizations are. So if you, if you interfere with that, or can you play back sounds to change the behavior of the animals yourselves? For me, this has been a big driver of our work, but in recent years, a big focus for me is now is also the mechanisms that these males use to maintain um, their relationships with one another. Um, and synchrony has become a massive part, you know, of my work now, both physical synchrony and acoustic synchrony. Mm. Are there fitness benefits if you're better at synchronizing your behavior? What's the function of acoustic synchrony? Is it to impress or intimidate or is it for social bonding? Um, these kind of things are a big focus of our work now. And we, we were also just starting a big grant with some international collaborators or colleagues on the social origins of vocal rhythm. So we're looking not just within Sharp Bay, but across um, many, many cetacean species. So that's another exciting avenue that we're working on. Wonderful. And if anyone who's listening today wants to learn more about Shark Bay, wants to help you guys out or maybe get involved, where can they find you? We have a Shark Bay website, so you can read about latest papers um, and there's contact details for all of us, which is uh, www.sharkbaydolphins.org. Uh, and I also have a group website, which is uh, Cetacean Comcog. Um, so if you look up Cetacean Communication and Cognition at the University of Bristol, you'll find our website and you've got specific details uh, about what my group's working on and also our contact details. Absolutely. And all of the links will be in the description box um, of this podcast. So Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with me today. It has been incredible. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. If you have enjoyed it, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus and I will catch you guys next week.